Welcome to the Kellenberg Podcast, hosted by Kellenberg Memorial High School. I'm James Mandy, and today's Bible quote is, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Thanks to everyone who tuned in to our last episode on how the Kellenberg family has been navigating through the remote learning and teaching process during the COVID-19 pandemic. From everybody here at Kellenberg, we're hoping nothing but the best for all of you. Keep washing those hands and staying inside. Hopefully today's episode makes quarantine go by just a little faster. So without further ado, let's welcome the Socrates of the 21st century. Please go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, James, thank you for having me. Uh, I am Mr. Flood. I am an English and writing teacher at Kellenberg. I teach uh, seniors. I've been teaching English and writing for 20 years at Kellenberg, James, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Pleasure to be here with you, too. So obviously, I have you this year for my English class. And since the beginning of the year, one question I always wanted to ask you is, what led you to teaching? How did you come into your desire of professing English since you have such an interesting, unique style of spreading, I don't want to say your message, but definitely spreading your way. Uh, what's your backstory in a sense? Uh, yeah, well, honestly, it is um, a bit of a family trade. My father was a teacher in Bushwick, Brooklyn for more than three decades. Uh, his mother, my grandmother, also a teacher. My brother is a teacher. My sister-in-law is a teacher. Many of my father's siblings, I've got many uncles and aunts on my mother and father's side. My father's side is also full of teachers. So I was surrounded by teachers. I was surrounded by people who taught in everything they did. Um, And uh, I think some people can feel sort of pressured by that, by having people constantly looking at what you're doing and uh, you know, examining or assessing your methods and outcomes. But it wasn't like that in my family. It was uh, just an instruction. There was always a sense of instruction and guidance. And um, and I recognized that in all my years of, of being a student, you know. Um, trust me, when I was a, a kid, I did not like being told what to do. But what I did love were teachers who believed in what they were doing and had a genuine sense of, I don't know, love or care, empathy and guidance in your instruction. And um, and I always admired it and it was a natural fit for me. You know, I studied English and philosophy in, in college. I did, not, uh, I did not major in education. I uh, gotta tell you, I went through most of my college and did not really know what I wanted to do, but um, I had a, it was a natural fit, and a, a few years after a, a minor job after college, uh, I, I couldn't help but exploring my options as a teacher, and that led me to Kellenberg, and uh, I haven't looked back. Awesome. So one of my favorite things about the way you teach is that when you start teaching, you don't really lecture. You more so have a conversation with the class. Is that your mentality going into it? Do you feel like you're having a conversation more? And teaching a room of kids? Oh, no doubt. Um, I I hope for the conversation. I, I wish for the conversation. My favorite thing is to dialogue with students. It is a lecture, though, James, in the way that there is a point. My job is to guide the conversation to uh, highlight setting or character or plot, theme, 
to highlight some uh, writing technique or style, uh, yes. So, so it is a lecture, um, but that sounds like a dirty word, right? Nobody likes being lectured. You yeah. know? Um, so yes, I, I think that you're right. And I'm, I'm glad that you see it that way because I, I do want a conversation. And sometimes when class is not interested in conversing with me, I have no problem dialoguing with myself. And I will play both parts of an argument or whatever needs to happen for students to see what a Shakespearean character is about. So, yes, conversation is very much, um, uh, I think, the, the, the tool or the method. What taught you to think in that way in terms of approaching uh, the class setting? Was that also in your family? Was that also how you were brought up in the oh, oh, yeah. Well, sure. Uh, my family members and I, we love to talk. And by talk, I mean uh, talk heatedly. Uh, or, and I won't say argue because it's very rarely hurt feelings. Um, it's not an argument, but we, we all love to make our points and, and talk with each other. Uh, so that's certainly part of it. Um, but I will also say that the um, my understanding of the necessity for dialogue, uh, I think it comes from studying philosophy, um, from understanding that you do need to examine every side of an issue and uh, you really can't. Uh, you really can't talk about something until you've thought of it in an exhausting way. Um, and, and I will say that that doesn't mean your thoughts are always correct. And uh, and my thoughts are not always correct. Obviously, I don't know everything there is to know about Shakespeare or or writing. But uh, I've thought about it. You know, I thought about it thoroughly. And the hope is that students realize. Um, when you're considering literature, for example, every word counts. When you are writing, in another example, every word counts. And if you're not thinking about things in that way, it's possible you won't get as much out of it as you can. So, yes, um, I think a study of philosophy, deep reading in general, probably gets you to uh, understand the, the various questions that are part of a dialogue, part of a question, right? uh, part of a, a conversation. Mm. Uh, one of the most interesting, I felt, your, of your thought experiments was your book itself, which I did read all the way through. Uh, would you like to talk about that for a little bit? I would love to. I would thank you first for reading it and reading it all the way through. Of course. Uh, there is, most uh, short, yes, I wrote a book. Um, Summer before last, um, I wrote a book um, about loss. It is a memoir, um, sadly, as you know from reading the book. Mm -hmm. I have uh, suffered the loss of a pregnancy with my wife. Um, I also discussed the death of my older brother many years ago. Um, uh, so I think I think of the book as a I don't know, lossography, if that makes sense. Interesting. Um, okay. um, because it, uh, summer before last or so, you know, roughly two years ago or so, I, I, it occurred to me that as much as I had spent time thinking about loss in my life, um, I probably didn't think about it in the way that we just discussed, you know, in thinking of every angle of it, thinking of every side of the issue in order to exhaust my thought process. 
um, and, and really come through it in a new understanding. I don't know if I've ever done that. And these losses are decades old, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally, a couple of summers ago, I decided to really think about it and to write about it and started you know, writing some ideas down and outlining some thoughts um, until I, I, I think I was encouraged by friends and colleagues uh, that, my, that there might be a book here. Uh, a book that might, in my personal experience, uh, that, that might use my personal experience to help others who are dealing with loss and sadness. Um, so I think that if you read the book, uh, as you have, you'll uh, discover that it is an exhausting exploration of very painful events, um, but almost like an exhausted marathoner, when it's over, and you get through that exhaustion, there is a lightness, a feeling of fulfillment and achievement that um, I hope you discover by the end of the book. By the end of the book, you see the, I don't know, uh, I don't know what to call it except because it's not satisfaction. I still have loss, you know, uh, just because I wrote a book doesn't bring those people back to me. It's still deeply sad, but, mm-hmm. um, but, but there is a feeling of, having faced something very, very powerful. And I hope that that comes through by the end of the book. And in facing that powerful thing, there is some liberation, I guess. That's fair. So one of the reasons why I referred to you as the Socrates of the 21st century was because when I was reading your book, I felt like, in a sense, you taught yourself, I don't want to say the lesson you never had, but I feel like you overcame an obstacle that uh, was difficult for you to work through and taught yourself how to do it without any help other than yourself, your mind. Uh, do you look at it the well, same way as kind of like a, a self-taught lesson, the book itself? Uh, well, I, I would, I don't, uh, I don't disagree hundred percent. No, I think that you're right. Um, but any self-taught lesson, anybody who's learned anything has a lot of people that taught them contributing lessons along the way. And as I write about in the book, you know, um, uh, my own partner in love and marriage and parent loss, my wife, has been a great teacher to me. Um, I talk about her uh, quite a bit in the book. Uh, um, there are people who um, who guided me in loss, uh, namely, you know, uh, bereavement group. Um, counselors, facilitators uh, that taught me the way to think about these things. Um, but yes, uh, um, there is a method to overcoming loss. It doesn't just go away. It, it is hard work and uh, it has been decades in the making. Um, writing a book is maybe the tip of the iceberg and it did prove to be therapeutic, but the real work had taken place for years before that on a daily basis. I may not have even been aware, James, that I was working towards my my healing. But uh, every conversation you have with someone, uh, every hug, uh, every laugh, uh, every cry, for that matter, those are all contributing lessons. Um, did I teach myself? Uh, I don't. I don't know if I would go that far. I would think that there are too many people who contributed to my awareness. Uh, to say that I taught myself. Mm. Um, you understand what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. So on the topic of coping, you had us watch a documentary uh, called Shakespeare Behind Bars. For those of you who don't know, Shakespeare Behind Bars is an attempt to rehabilitate 
uh, quite frankly, devious criminals who committed heinous acts of murder and other heinous crimes with Shakespeare plays. For example, the play that we read this year, The Tempest, it was displayed in this documentary. Ms. Flo, would you like to explain your method behind that, showing us that right before we took a test on it? Sure, sure. Well, uh, we spend a lot of time reading Shakespeare, and we spend a lot of time talking about Shakespeare. And you could have spent twice as long. You could take a whole semester on a single Shakespearean play. Um, I have done that in college. Uh, and you would think that that's, um, you know, painful. But like I said, that sort of exhaustive study of something is liberating in a strange way that to look at every single word in a Shakespearean play can be thrilling. Uh, but for seniors in February, uh, maybe not so much. So the idea is in a few weeks for us to look at what Shakespeare does well. Uh, namely his poetry, and I hope that I was able to convey to you the beauty of his words, his exhilarating character, and again, I hope I was able to convey the beauty of his character to you. But in the end, what Shakespeare made, what, what makes Shakespeare so magical for the past, you know, 400 years is the way he knew human life, the way he knew us as humans, not the way we knew his characters, not the way we know his poetry, but the way he, Shakespeare, knew us, human beings, right? 400 years later, he still knows us. He still gets us. Mm. Uh, why Shakespeare is not only a great entertainer, a great poet, um, you know, a great storyteller, but he's also a, a psychiatrist and a philosopher. Um, and, and, and that is absolutely true. Um, uh, so the, the point is, after reading all of those words in that language that so many of us struggle to understand, much of what is good about Shakespeare is lost in all the these and the thous and the thighs. You know, all of those foreign sounding words to a 17 year old student are lost. And, and if those words are lost, the good of Shakespeare is lost. Namely, how does he know us? How, do, how does he get us? So. My hope in showing that documentary, which at times can be disturbing, and like you said, some of those prisoners are uh, awful felons, right? Um, but the point is how humanizing it makes them, that the study of Shakespeare gives us a chance to see humanity, flaws and all, right? Uh, Shakespeare didn't pretend anybody was human, uh, anybody was perfect, um, and that that documentary Shakespeare behind bars certainly doesn't make these men perfect, but it does humanize them. We do see their struggles and we see their pain and we see their shortcomings and we see their awfulness at times. But the, the point of showing the documentary is to see that in the world of difference between me, a 17 year old at Kellenberg Memorial High School, and this fella in a, in a, uh, you know, a prison in Kentucky, there are at times um, not too many differences between us. And I think it is perhaps more important than anything for us all to realize that, to realize that there's not so much difference between us. Um, and I hope that that documentary can sometimes uh, make that clear that what we should be taking from Shakespeare is our humanity.
Absolutely. I did rewatch the documentary and I did have a serious question for you regarding Shakespeare himself. Please. Do you think he was crazy? <laughs> well, I, I don't know who said it, but, uh, you know, somebody said, uh, you know, the, the, the line between madness and brilliance is much thinner than you might like. Um, Often uh, do, do I think he was crazy? Um, do I think he was crazy? Uh no, I don't see. I don't see creative genius. Creative genius. He is otherworldly. Nobody has, well, in in some arguments, nobody has done or achieved what he's done. Uh, only a handful of people. And I know I shared this quote with you in class, but T. S. Eliot, who was a great modernist poet himself, said, uh, "The world is divided between Shakespeare and Dante, and there is no third." Um, the idea that there's nobody else. Uh, it's sort of like, if you want to talk about basketball, and I know we talked about this in class, but there's LeBron and there's Michael Jordan, and that's it. Everybody else is a distant, distant, distant last place, you know. And um, and so Shakespeare, um, to be that creative, to be that, uh, I mean, unfathomably talented, makes him perhaps seem otherworldly and crazy. But uh, no, I would say he's a genius. Uh, one of his biggest influences was clearly the ancient Greek classics. Uh, one of which we read was the Iliad. Uh, sure. And of course, the great battle between Hector and Achilles, uh, even as far as to say the battle of ancient battle of good and evil that never ends, that persists till this day. Yeah. You gave a truly fascinating lecture about, sorry, conversation, not lecture, yeah. <laughs> about uh, how the mindset of Achilles is more dominant in our society today than the mindset of Hector, despite Hector being the more caring and, frankly, ideal person to strive to be opposed to Achilles. No doubt. Yes. Um, and that is absolutely true. And I usually start that conversation by referring to the film version of the Iliad Troy, and we all know Brad Pitt is Achilles. Now, that movie is probably 20 years old by now, but 20 years ago, Brad Pitt was America's boy, uh, Hollywood's boy. He was the most handsome man. He was the most desirable actor. Uh, he was beloved. And, um, and he is not a villain in the Iliad, uh, in, in the movie Troy, right? He's not a villain. Um, and I don't know if he's a villain. I don't know if the character Achilles is a villain in, in the Iliad, but between Achilles and Hector, who according to Homer were both heroes and heroes was not a moral, ethical, right and wrong uh, 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 title. The hero was simply somebody who was larger than life, who could achieve great things, not good things, not morally good things, but great things, could do, you know, could move mountains, so to speak, right? Um, so the, the, the discussion at the time is we value Achilles in our modern culture as a winner, right, as the greatest, but we don't frequently examine what kind of a person he actually is. Now, again, this is not something that I've come up with. This is things that people have taught me. But um, so, for example, in the in our Middle Ages, in our Christian medieval European sense, 
uh, Hector the Trojan, Hector the Trojan was uh, beloved. Um, he was one of the nobles. Uh, he was one of the these pagan. I think there were nine nobles, or and I forget what it is, but there were nine characters: three biblical, three pagan, and um, I don't know if you classical. I think, um, and they were they represented the great values of our medieval European culture. They were loyal. They were brave. They were devoted to family. They were devoted to country. They were devoted to God. Uh, they were fair. They were. Um, respectful, they were compassionate. In a strange way, Hector is a good Christian. And that's what the medieval European um, sort of academics and, and theologians saw in Hector. So they valued him, they honored him. Achilles, if we can use Dante's Inferno as an example, Achilles goes to hell. But yet today, we have somehow um, drifted in our association from the, the very lovable Hector to the pretty terrible Achilles. Uh, and it is certainly a cultural shift um, that winning has somehow eclipsed goodness. And we can see that in our uh, fascination today with Achilles. And frankly, most high school students don't even know who Hector is. Um, whereas several hundred years ago, Hector was a great uh, hero of medieval European culture. I find that to be an interesting um, one to switcheroo, so to speak. Absolutely. Another switcheroo that we have presently, currently, is the fact that Western civilization looks to the Greeks, Achilles, as the forefathers of civil civilization, when in reality it was the Romans who look to the Trojans, not necessarily to the Greeks. Do you consider that to be within the same switcheroo or schism? I think 100% yes, yes. Um, you know, uh, so the Renaissance was a rebirth of Greco-Roman arts, culture, thinking, so on and so forth. Greco-Roman, both of them, right? Um, the the European Middle Ages, the Holy Roman Empire, right? So we can see our Western civilization is steeped in uh, all of the classical. Classical means Greco-Roman, right? Mm -hmm. So we have uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire, and they traced their roots to Troy, not Greece, right? Uh, the, the great hero of the Holy Roman Empire, or at least in the fiction, um, uh, Roland. Uh, we read of Roland uh, several weeks ago, uh, or rather last semester. Uh, Roland uh, has a sword, and his sword is named Durandal. And I don't know if you remember, James, but Durandal was originally Hector's sword. Hector's sword, that's right. So the Holy Roman Empire allied themselves with the Romans, the Trojans before that. Right. And they were aware of that alliance. They were aware of that cultural uh, sort of evolution. And then we move into the Renaissance, and the Renaissance is a rebirth of Greco-Roman culture. So it might be that the Renaissance, and then the the Romantic and the and uh, the Enlightenment and Romantic periods after that, where uh, classical learning is the focus of these tremendous artistic 
uh, um, periods in Western civilization, we move perhaps more to the Greek side by the Greco-Roman equation. And then we, uh, and you would have to ask your, your teachers of the classics and things like that at Kellenberg, um, but, but I move into the 20th century. Um, I think that association with the Roman values of uh, you know, piety, that kind of uh, faithfulness to family and, and God and nation, we lose some of that. Um, and the Greek achievement of uh, the, the Greek word of arete, which is achievement in American culture, I think possibly becomes the great um, uh, the the great goal, right? Just achieve something, just that greatness, um, and greatness at any cost. Sometimes, um, no matter what, it would seem to me that as a culture, Western civilization um, is uh, losing some sight of the again human elements of the classical literature. Such as destination without the journey, right? Without, I think that's very much really right. Uh, so, for example, everybody knows who won. Who everybody knows who won the, uh, the war, but we don't actually know how they got there. And if you examined how the Greeks got there, you know they did it through a brutal uh, warfare um, and trickery. Um, in the end, Odysseus invents a the horse and they trick the Trojans. They pretend to run away uh, and they gift the Trojan horse to the to the Trojans. And sadly, the Trojans fall for it. But the point is that they were uh, in the Iliad anyway. We see the Greeks as uh, uh, fearless, yes, but um, merciless, unforgiving warriors and and tricksters. Um, and I think that in our modern sense, we would look at those two things and say, well, that's not really how we want to win. Uh, we want to win, but I don't think we want to win in those ways. Um, but that is how they come the war. The, the, the Trojans were clearly the nobler people. Very, very true. While we're on the European continent as a whole, I know that was quite the segue. Uh, you and I both claim to have Irish and Hungarian descent. You had. <laughs> Gypsy Hungarian descent, me having royal Hungarian descent, not to brag. <laughs> uh, you may not remember, but in the beginning of the year, I did see you and Mr. Chickalees outside school, and I managed to flaunt my Attila the Hun phone case. Do you remember that? I, I do remember that, yes. And you were uh, boasting of your Magyar descent, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, and I think I indicated to you at that time that no, I'm not Magyar. Uh, and and it's really a silliness, but um, I'm all, I am part Hungarian. This is true. My mother's maiden name is Lagrady, uh, but it's actually in, in Hungarian. It would have been Lagrady. And uh, from what I understand, anybody with that last name in the United States is loosely my relative. It was a small community in Hungary, um, and as uh, the ethnic gypsies, they were. Persona non grata, and um, the, apparently the, the community from which we uh, we come is a town called Lagrati in Hungary, and and, um, and they fled because of persecution, and they came to the states, 
And uh, from what I understand, anybody with the last name of Grady is uh, is a relative of mine. Interesting. So, being, with that being said, do you feel they all have the same psychic powers of you as you? <laughs> like, like, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but I do have vivid dreams that do frequently come true. Uh, so I don't know. I I should spend less time talking to my students about it and more time playing lottery numbers that I see in my dreams. For those of you who don't know, the gypsies stereotypically are known to have psychoactive visions that can foresee the future or read fortunes or anything along those lines. And Mr. Flood has been lucky enough to be granted those same abilities as well, it appears. <laughs> I understand your time is running short. Uh, I believe that's all we have time for today. Well, that was great, James. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And uh, I will tell you, uh, for anybody uh, listening, and to yourself, James, um, I miss you all. I, I really wish we were in the classroom right now, but I hope we're all making the most of this. Read a good book. Um, uh, check out some great poetry. Learn something that you've never learned before. Watch a good documentary. There's so much out there on the internet for us to learn from and be um, awestruck by. I hope that uh, everybody's making the most of this and um, I do look forward to seeing you all again. look forward to seeing you too, Mr. Flood. I'm going to go learn how to make a Wiener schnitzel. <laughs> there you go, James. All right. <laughs> all right. Take care, James. Thanks so, so much. You got it. Did you like this podcast? Catch up on all the ones you've missed by finding and subscribing to us either on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, or find us at kellenberg.org slash podcast. If you don't already follow us, please do on all of our social media at Kellenberg, or for all the religious aspects of our school, follow us at Kellenberg Art. Thanks for tuning in today. See you next week. Adios. Adios.